0: Hey, how's it going?
1: Hi, David. Um, you can hear me right?
0: Yeah, sounds perfect on my end. Uh, so, it, shall we begin?
1: Is it better than it was before?
0: Yes, I think it is, actually. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Okay. Well done, yeah.
1: Um. Yeah, let's give it a go. All right. I'm nervous, but don't worry, I'm always nervous.
0: <laughs> uh. Okay, so... The first question that I have actually starts with from the introduction of contemporary left anti-Semitism. And it's the this this distinction that you draw in the introduction between beer keller, which would literally be beer cellar or a pub, I guess, a bar, in to translate that to American culture. And so beer keller anti-Semitism and then bistro anti-Semitism. I guess the American translation would be like bar versus coffee shop or something along those lines. What is what is the difference here between beer keller anti-Semitism and bistro anti-Semitism? And where does this idea come from?
1: Well, I guess I think I probably had in mind um, Hannah Arendt when she talked about the totalitarian movement as an alliance between uh, the mob and the elite. Uh, when she talked about the mob, she, she meant something quite specific and quite different from Uh, what one might think one might think of uh, working class people or something like that but that's not what she meant she meant a kind of atomised group of people made furious by their uh, the spitting out of society that they've experienced and they're, they're having no place actually in the structures of class or nation or anything really um, and also at a time of um, increasing economic unemployment and deprivation, so people who were kind of, felt themselves to be completely pushed out of society altogether. Mm. And she talked about the alliance between them and the mob, um, sorry, and the uh, the elite, which also I suppose in a sense um, is a group of people, perhaps intellectuals, perhaps... Um, academics, perhaps students who also in a sense um, are not quite part of the ordinary uh, class structures of society and um, are a, a little bit outside of it and um, can put themselves into a position, into a situation where they feel uh, able to speak um, with not much actual responsibility for the consequences of what they say and what they think.
0: Hmm. So would this, would it be fair to break it down as, as let's say beer keller antisemitism is sort of the more the mob, the brash, the more vulgar antisemitism, the more sort of like easy to identify offensive using epithets, that kind of stuff? Yeah, I
1: guess so. I mean, you might just think of it as the beer keller antisemitism as, as kind of very scary, tough people with, you know, skinheads or, or people who, okay. who go around beating people up and um uh the beastro anti Semitism being much a much more kind of intellectual and sophisticated um anti Semitism.
0: Mm. So anti Semitism essentially in a way dressed up so that uh perhaps one of the functions of this would be that it is uh less vulnerable to accusations of anti Semitism because the people making this kind of rhetoric can can kind of shift and move and make intellectual arguments and say, well, I'm not, this isn't anti-Semitic. For instance, most famously perhaps, uh, I'm I'm just criticizing, uh, you know, Israeli government policy, for instance.
1: Sure. Hmm. I'm not sure that that is um, a necessary aspect of um, elite or intellectual anti-Semitism. I mean, Wilhelm Maher himself uh, was uh, uh, an intellectual... In fact, uh, what Wilhelm Maher did was he, he was quite dissatisfied with what he regarded as a kind of vulgar and stupid, old-fashioned anti-Semitism, which uh, uh, was just mean about Jews on, on kind of rather vulgar religious grounds. And what he was trying to do was to create a new kind of uh, intelligent anti-Semitism, which responded in a... Uh, a kind of intellectually coherent way to the actual threat that um, Jews pose in our day. So, mm. uh, the, I see. the 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 requirement that anti-Semites should not be aware of their own anti-Semitism or should certainly not admit to their own anti-Semitism. I su- I suspect that might be, in some senses, new. It might be a post-Holocaust phenomenon too. I see.
0: I was I I brought that up per, yeah perhaps that's not that's that's ancillary I brought that up simply because I was reminded in looking at this uh, framework of of the term ghost skin uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it but this is essentially a white supremacist or white nationalist who understands that they can't simply go around saying the things that they believe in their heart of hearts and so they'll use dog whistles or euphemisms or other ways of uh, they they essentially just will not um, admit to who they are, hence the term "ghost skin" or "ghost skinhead." So they 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 walk among us, but we do not see them for what they are. And I see the connection to that and anti-Semitism, especially since with recent events in the West uh, since October seventh, and you have various professors at elite universities uh making remarks that are there are slogans being passed around there are you know things that are not on their face anti-semitic but you only have to know the context a little bit to understand what this might mean to other people in certain circles and it's you know it's so it's and the reason that they that they do this, I believe, is because they are essentially a form of a ghost skin that understands that, well, if you just came right out and said it directly, <laughs> you would just instantly be ostracized. But, but no one's going to ostracize you for saying um, something like, from the river to the sea, because you can transition that to, no, I, I'm just talking about free Palestine. I'm talking about liberation and resistance. I'm not talking about, you know, what from the river to the sea means. I mean, like, how do you get there? Well well, we know how you accomplish that. Do you think that there's a connection there with, with do you think that there's a sort of a, a ghost skin anti-Semitism that we see today?
1: Um, no, I don't, actually. I think I quite profoundly disagree with you. Um, I think that the anti-Semitism uh, that we see in universities and amongst scholars today and in the responses to the events of the 7th of October, I don't think that those are people who are conscious of their own anti-Semitism and conscious of their own hatred of Jews who are hiding it uh, inside rhetoric that they think will be more easy to get away with. I don't think that's what's happening. I think that that kind of anti-Semitism is um, carried by people who honestly believe that they're not only not anti-Semitic, but they are the strongest opponents of anti-Semitism and racism of all kinds. Mm. And I think part of the part of the threat and part of the strength of this form of anti-Semitism is precisely that it is carried by people who think of themselves as the good guys and who are absolutely not pretending. I think their um, protestations to innocence are uh, genuine, genuinely felt.
0: Uh, no, I, I I definitely agree with you that that is. Mm. I guess I I'm not ready to really say how much of this I think that like you know I think ghost skins are pretty rare in, in in either of these communities. I think generally I think you're right. I think you know most of the people that are out there in these protests or giving these speeches, it truly believe that they're on they fight they're on the right side of history as they often like to tell us, and that they are yeah. fighting fighting against racism, fighting against oppression. Um, yeah,
1: it's not, it's not actually that my. I think that most people who embrace anti-Semitic ideas and anti-Semitic politics think of themselves as the good guys. Um, I mean, I think that's also true of people who embrace other forms of racism or sexism or whatever. I think uh, people who who are in favour of genocide and who uh, support genocide believe that genocide is a defence against a really threatening... uh, Other, Um, I agree. I think, uh, yeah.
0: No, I mean, I mean, I I would even go so far as to say that this also applies to uh, all but these psychopathic, pure psychopathic members of Nazism. But I would say the majority of Nazis believed in their own minds they were able to do the mental gymnastics to convince themselves that they were, you know, they were the good guys, and and like in famously, somewhat, I guess, at least for those who've read Mein Kampf chapter two where Hitler talks about his slow descent into embracing anti-Semitism and like how he got there. He's it for him. uh, He formulates it all as, as confronting this threat to society, Mm. this like I have to defeat this threat. This is a harm. I'm combating a harm. I'm, he didn't, Mm. you know, you don't get people to do evil by convincing them to do evil. You get them to do evil by convincing them that the evil is actually good and then you you prey upon their the the better angels of their nature as it were and that's what makes it so insidious is that they it's hard to get someone to drop something when they think that's that's their virtue that's the that's their yeah. good fight you know if if you could i was speaking to a psychologist of of cults actually um, and cult membership and and the psych- and how this works and, and one of the things is that with a lot of these people you you can There's kind of a hope that you can get through to them because they still have a functioning moral compass in the sense that they still value the good. They still oppose what they see as harm to society. They've just got the wrong map of reality. And if you could show them somehow, hypothetically, that their victims are innocent, they might do the rest of the work for you. They might be like, oh, like that's really the trick is like showing them that. And they still have the rest still kind of functioning. There's this one, I forget his name. He's a quite a famous, uh, he's a, a black individual, an American, and he befriends KKK members. Are you familiar with this guy? Mm, and no. and yeah, he, he, he actually like befriends KKK members and gets them to, he sort of like pulls them back into the light one by one. And, mm. and I
1: mean, well, of- there is a, there, there are whole literatures about um, uh, de-radicalization and about... Um, uh, supporting people to uh, walk back from various kinds of um, uh, terroristic or racist politics. Mm. Um, yeah, but I think I think it's a real mistake to think of Nazis w- using a kind of stereotype that we get from kind of nineteen fifties movies, right? That the Nazi kind of struts up and down, convinced of his own evil. I don't. I don't think that helps us to understand anything, um, in particular not Nazism itself. right? And uh, I also think it really prevents us from recognizing anti-Semitism today, mm-hmm. because nothing that we see looks like that. <laughs> right? Nothing that we see around us, on campus for example, uh, looks like that, and it isn't like that. And mm. even Nazism wasn't like that. So I think um, we need to get away from thinking about Racists or, or, or anti Semites, as you know, people who are aware of their own evil, and we need to think of racism and anti Semitism as um, s- social phenomena, social structures out there um, in the world that people get caught up in and that people embrace or that, that people are um, coerced by.
0: Yeah, this, this is an argument I think that goes that we can find going all the way back to. Hannah Arendt, all the way up to Jordan Peterson, who has argued, the the clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson has argued, you know, um, don't be so arrogant as to believe that if you were an everyday German citizen back then, that you would have been different, and you would never have fallen for it, and you would have not gotten swept up in it. We all have these biases within us that can be preyed upon. And when your entire society is leaning in a direction, it's quite it's quite something to believe that you would know better than everybody else around you. And that's the true, you know, the, the other rising of antisemitism and saying, well, they were evil. So that's why they did it sort of absolves us of the, the, the threat that we might be perpetuating it. And that it is something that is almost in a sense dormant in all of us, this, this ability to be prejudicial and we have to be on guard against it at all times. I think this is the point that he's making and, And um, I think this is a mistake, as you were just saying, I think this is a mistake that many people make is to sort of otherize it as this pure sort of like in an Indiana Jones movie, like this pure caricature of evil that has that has really nothing to do with decent people. And what we see today and what we see in history is that like, actually, you know, the horrors, one of as as I recently wrote, one of the great horrors of the Holocaust was the realization that that so many normal people had been complicit the the banality of evil right the like everyday folk not just going along but but like willingly taking part and
1: well i think i i think it's this is a really difficult discussion because i think uh for sure it's true that people who get caught up in uh totalitarian politics and in racist politics Um, we can relate our own experiences of getting caught up in things um, to their experiences. We can see around us good people getting uh, caught up in things that look to us to be terrible. But I also think it's true that um, there are always people who do recognize Mm. the threat, the danger, and who act, um, you know, really well <laughs> so so we can't just say well if everyone you know everybody's guilty or everybody's potentially guilty because actually then we lose the the, the kind of distinction of people who are actually not guilty uh-huh. um so i think both sides of this discussion are um relevant i think um we can all get caught up in um things uh, Like that, but I also think the people who um, refused—it's—it's not okay just to say. Well, I mean, what do you say about them then? You know.
0: I guess you would say. I mean, if you're going with the with the with the the framework that we all have this potential for this kind of action, I guess you would say that maybe they are the best among us. I'm not saying that this is what I personally believe, I, but this is, yeah. I think, how the argument would go, right? Like, they they have yeah. something – they're heroes in some sense, and, and they're rare. Mm-hmm. I think that's what the argument would
1: – Yeah, so that, that's interesting too because um, I think that Zygmunt Bauman, the sociologist uh, who wrote a book called Modernity and the Holocaust, I think he does that. I think he says that you know it was the structures of modernity in fact structures that are very similar to the structures of our society today which led to the holocaust and you know we were people were constrained as Max Weber said in in the iron cage of necessity uh, of modernity and it wasn't really anybody's fault it was the fault of modernity and yes there were some people who uh, behaved morally but they only did it by stepping outside of their society and becoming kind of superhuman and I don't buy that either <laughs> I don't <laughs> think I, I don't think we have to be superhuman to um, to,
0: to, to not be, be... anti-Semitic <laughs> yeah
1: yes I, yes I think that the, the requirement that that, that, uh, that um, uh rescuers are superhuman is is a is another version of uh really um saying that the people who did not step out of their society and become superhuman are are not responsible so
0: mm. it's kind i of, think uh, sorry go ahead not, Oh, it's it's kind of the you inverse, think, right? Of the of the other rising of the evil. It's sort of in a way otherizing the good. Now you're saying like, well, that's rare. That's yeah. a, that's not in all of us. Like we're not. And the truth is, maybe both those things are in all of us, and we have the potential for. It's, it's a little bit of a platitude, I guess, but we have the potential for good and evil in all of us.
1: Look, I, the whole of sociology, in a sense, is is a, 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 an, un, a, a an interplay between structure and agency. Right, Mm that you know, human beings are created by the social structure in which they're born and which they're brought up, and we're taught a language, we're taught ways of thinking, we're taught all kinds of things by the social structure around us. But we also have human agency, Mm. um, meaning we can decide what to do. And um, I think the very best sociology uh, is about an interplay between structure and agency, and the worst sociology um gives you kind of uh uh, um sorry i've got a phone call the worst sociology gives you um um just you know that people are just constrained by structure that 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 they're nothing but products of their time or products of their place or products of um the structures which uh uh, oppressed them. Um, this phone call is persistent, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I've turned it off now. This is I'm a Chinese.
0: no worries. This is an argument that has risen its head uh, after October 7th. I've seen this come up where people are arguing you know, you, you cannot criticize an oppressed group of people wh- for however. When they break free of their of their open air prison, um, you you cannot criticize the way in which they do that, because they are because this is all a product of the of the system of oppression in which they live and the circumstances of conditions in Gaza and therefore if anyone's to blame for what Hamas did on October seventh, it's actually Israel. This is the this is the argument that I've that I've heard and I saw one person on uh, X make this argument to which i responded that my grandfather lived under pretty harsh conditions in a concentration camp and he escaped he broke out I he didn't rape or murder anybody on his way out he didn't you know the conditions under which he lived uh, did have a profound and permanent effect on his psychology and not for the better he was he was in a in a sense broken for the rest of his life but um i mean he had they didn't have a word for it back then but it was severe ptsd and 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 yet at the same time as you say you know there's an interplay there with agency and there was definitely a sense of agency and character and you know he had he, did, he didn't have any desire to hurt german children i mean that just wasn't well, you know
1: look it's it's easily demonstrable that many many palestinians don't want to to join Hamas and don't want, you know, don't embrace uh, the hatred of Jews and don't want to participate in the murder and rape and kidnapping, right? Like, it's easily demonstrable that most Palestinians do not do that. And so to then say, well, you know, Palestinians are kind of so constructed that they are only slaves to their passions and their anger i mean it it's just a really straightforward orientalist racist caricature mm. of Palestinians, right they have and, no and, agency yeah well exactly i mean interestingly sometimes you you get the feeling that um movements like hamas they see the worst racist orientalist caricature of muslims and they say to themselves ah that looks cool let's embrace that (laughs) (laughs) let's do all of the things that the worst white colonialist racists accused us of doing of being Mm. i mean it's a real reversal of the kind of rebellion against racism it's mm. it's a really appalling
0: there is a kind of psychological explanation there i mean even on an individual basis you know you you can you can just think anecdotally about examples of like teenagers who might who might push back against parental authority by by simply embodying everything that that they're that they that they are not that they're accused of almost in an act of defiant like will of of like yeah. well fine yeah. well that's what you think of me you think like this well then i'm just gonna do yeah. that like even more than you imagined just to True. i'll show you and it's and you know it's it's obviously self-defeating but they're not they're not thinking that deeply about it and, and i think you're right i think there is something like that going on um
1: well in- the, 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 so the, there is a phenomenon right we i don't know you very well but i have probably been that teenager And I have had teenagers who were my children, and sometimes, you know, that kind of stuff happens. But uh, what is the argument here? The argument is that we should understand Palestinians to be the worst kind of teenager in their very worst moment. And again, no, (laughs) you know, most Palestinians are not like that. Hmm. Um, So it's just a kind of really awful stereotype, Caricature of 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 flesh and blood human beings, actually. Uh. And you know what we know is that the hatred, the the genocidal hatred of Jews, is an ideological construction, and it was uh, baked into Hamas at the very beginning of its existence. And Hamas came into existence uh, with the intention of preventing the peace process from being successful of sabotaging the peace process by killing Jews and therefore uh, turning Israeli public opinion away from a two-state solution. And um, that's what Hamas was for. And um, it it opposed, from the very beginning and in principle, a Palestinian state. You know, Hamas says in, in its founding document, Yes. that so-called peace processes are a violation of the principles of the islamic resistance movement yeah so so let's remember who's who right that people you know want to side with uh, an idea of palestine which is rising up against its oppressors and and they kind of have have no option other than to uh put that idea onto the kind of template of reality and to force it on. But, you know, Hamas came to power in a coup against the Palestinian Authority, and it threw uh, many, many people who were part of the Palestinian Authority off the top of high buildings. That's what Hamas did with people who talked about peace and who talked about uh, a sovereign Palestinian state.
0: Um, so this kind of gets into the, into the, um, just changing a little bit, uh, but this gets into, as we, as we discuss these various, um, I guess there's a chapter in your book where you, in your book, uh, where you discuss sort of the difficulty of even just defining anti-Semitism itself. Can you talk about that right. a little bit?
1: Sure. Um, I think, I mean, I think this is true with, um, uh, well, many kinds of social phenomena, right? That there is no app for your iPhone or your Android that can recognize anti-Semitism. I mean, goodness me, you know, Twitter and Facebook uh, are really trying to develop them because, you know, they they want to have an algorithm that that prohibits this or that kind of anti-Semitic speech um it's really difficult to do right there there, there's a reason for that and the reason is that in order to recognize anti-semitism you require political judgment so there's no easy mechanized shortcut to 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 work out whether a case in front of you is anti-semitic or not but there are there is knowledge (laughs) There is knowledge about anti-Semitism and how it works and what it generally looks like. And there are frameworks um, like the IRA definition of anti-Semitism, which can help. The IRA definition is really simple. It says that this kind of anti-Semitism, anti-Zionist anti-Semitism, exists and is significant. And it says that often it appears... In forms like these examples like this 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 and this but it says you need to take every particular case in context you need to make a judgment um there's no ready retina and then it says by the way that uh, criticism of israel which is analogous to criticism of any other state is not anti-semitic so ira is a really very tame document hmm. it doesn't say that anything is anti-semitic it merely gives you a framework um, to recognize it by and it gives you a statement to say that this kind of anti-Semitism exists hmm. so the people who feel incredibly threatened by ira are incredibly threatened by a very tame gentle document
0: who would be? Can you think of anyone who does express like strong opposition to that definition?
1: Well, of course, the people who express strong opposition to Ira are the people who want to deny that anti-Zionist anti-Semitism exists.
0: Mm. What, what do you think um, of the what do you think of Nathan Sharansky's three uh, Ds or the three D test formulation for determining when anti-Zionist critiques are in fact just anti-semitism
1: um I, i'm laughing to myself because uh and i remember laughing with uh, friends of mine um i always forget what the d's are they are delegitimate delegitimization um
0: demonization demonization and double standards so essentially the idea right. for double listeners standards. yeah for listeners who double may not standard. know it's double standards yeah right sorry Demonization, dele-
1: delegitimization, and
0: demonization. So, um, so talking demonized. about Israel as like an evil empire, or you know, whatever, like just in any way. Yeah. Um. Essentially, I mean, again, you, I don't, I don't no, think go ahead.
1: it's not it's not a definition, right? It it can't it doesn't give you an automatic no because because it doesn't tell you what counts as demonization or what counts as double standards. You have to have some judgment. So. I think it's quite a useful, um, you know, little uh, uh, kind of ready reckoner. But uh, again, uh, but as you know, you also with racism, you need to have some judgment to work out what is racist and what isn't. I mean, you know, half of uh, mainstream political discourse is a fight over what is racist and what isn't, right? Right. The, I mean, for me, you so, know
0: f- oh, sorry, go ahead. <clears throat>
1: No, no, you
0: go ahead. I was simply going to say that for me, the three Ds boil down to a simple uh, rubric, which is, you know, if if you're if you're if you're giving criticism to Israel that you would not give, I think that all boils down to the third D, which is double standards. If you're if you're criticizing Israel in a way that you would not criticize another liberal democracy, or you're holding Israel to a standard that is much higher than any other standard that you would hold another country, and it's still not good enough. Uh, that's a pretty strong indicator that something else is going on. It doesn't, I guess, I suppose it doesn't prove that you're being anti-Semitic, but that raises a red flag where you would need to consider whether you're being anti-Semitic. That's that's what I would say.
1: Well, I agree with that, but I, but still, you have, you know, you can have an argument over whether uh, this or that speech or this or that action demonizes Israel or criticizes Israel because it's a matter of judgment. You can have an argument about whether there are double standards or not, because that's a matter of judgment. So, uh, I agree with you that the, the the three the three Ds model, if you, if you can remember what the three Ds are, is quite good, it's quite <laughs> useful. But um, uh, it, still, you you know, there's interpretation and there's discussion. The the thing is that when you're up against um, anti-Semitism, that there's a kind of refusal to discuss. So. For example, if you raise uh, the issue of anti Semitism, I don't know, we've got lots of experience of it. We had lots of experience of it in the Labour Party. Um, we have experience of it at, um, you know, in our university. If you say, well, hang on, I think that this piece of speech is a double standard and I think it, it does demonise and I think therefore it is anti Semitic, then if the other person engages with you engages with the evidence and says all right well let's think about it let's look at exactly what we're talking about and let's look at other cases and as soon as that happens we're home and dry because we're into the realms of rational discussion and we can have a disagreement about a particular case right i might think somebody's going you might not we can have a rational discussion about the evidence and about how we understand it great we're, we're home and dry then Because what normally happens isn't, okay, let's have a look at the evidence. What normally happens is, ha, I know what you're really up to. Hmm. What you're really up to is trying to delegitimize criticism of Israel uh, in order that anyone who is critical of Israel gets um, uh, delegitimized as anti-Semitic. So the moment we, we and our interlocutor are engaged in a debate that's rational a debate over evidence a, a debate of judgment great right. then we're winning of course but but generally that's not how it goes generally uh before you know it you get denounced as an asset of a foreign totalitarian racist power uh, and um you're pushed out of the community of, of, of the good you're pushed out of the community of rational discussion and evidence
0: mm. Mm. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this concept of the community of the good recently and the way that people who identify themselves as being a member of the community, it's amazing what things, as we said earlier in this conversation, you can can be convinced to do. When I think about um, turning the page slightly, but when I think about you, you made a point about having the knowledge and sort of knowing and having this rational discourse with this issue. And then also we were talking about sort of like the structural effects of, Let's say living in, in Gaza. Um, when I then look over uh, at Western academics who are saying and doing things that I find uh, inc- unconscionable with regard to October 7th, they are not under the same structural influences as someone in Gaza. They are often highly educated. They have access to some of the best sources of information on the planet they're they're often working at some of the most elite s- institutions of of information of education, uh, you know, in the world. Uh, so, in a way, I'm not sure how you'll what you'll think of this, but in in a way, at least to me, they're they're almost worse because they're not brainwashed by circumstance, brainwashed by just deliberately brainwashed by a system in Gaza that, from the age of like three, is is telling kids the best thing you can do is be a martyr and kill Jews. They didn't grow up in that environment and yet they still come to support in one way or another the same thing so it's it's yeah. it's I like mean, the only thing worse than delusional anti-semitism I mean, is anti-semitism without any delusion it's just like wide-eyed
1: if, if you're brought up um under occupation of a, a you know occupied by a predominantly jewish army that occupies you in the name of its jewish state you can imagine all sorts of ways in which you might kind of become anti-semitic,
0: right? I
1: mean, I I still don't think it's reasonable because I think many Palestinians don't do that. But you can kind of understand it. But you're right. If you live far away from the conflict, if you have access to information, if you are one of the most highly educated and intelligent people on the planet, you do not have that excuse. Um, And you have a duty to think um, carefully, and to mobilize evidence and to use your judgment, and to educate yourself. Mm. uh, And to look at the literature, you have many more duties, um, which ought to protect you from um, embracing anti-Semitism.
0: So then, I guess my question is, what's happening? I, I mean, for me, part of it, and this—I don't—I don't pretend to have the full. It's a very complicated problem, but part of it seems to be that—that that the anti-Semitism of anti-Zionism wrapped up with the pro-Palestinian movement, and which, uh, in it, which itself, although it, there's very noble aspects to it, there's also ways in which it's inherently anti-Semitic. You can trace it back to Amin al-Husseini, and and he was he was. Uh, if if not arguably a literal Nazi, sending Jews directly to death camps for the Nazis. Um, And, and the way these things get packaged together with with other left wing, uh, what we what you might call, I don't know, woke progressive or or ultra progressive ideas um, in a way that I think, as you said earlier, Presents them as, uh, you know, the fight of the oppressed, the fight of liberation, the the fight against racism, and for that reason, people sign on. And so, part of this, at least what we're seeing, like post October seventh, part of what we're seeing is uh, can be traced back to, for lack of a better term, wokeness, or just the the spread of this of this this idea of. I don't know anti anti racist thinking that that isn't literally anti racist in the sense of opposition to racism, but is a spe- a specific formulation of of what it means to be racist and what it means to be opposed to anti to be opposed to racism and and uh, and and we've seen this spread through the universities in in the West these ideas um, and I well I'll I'll pause there and, and get your response.
1: Gosh, uh, if you were cross-examining me in court, I think that would be
0: a compound. Um, <laughs> uh, help me out here. Give me a question. Uh, <laughs> uh, how much of this that we're seeing do you think actually rests back? Can be traced back to uh, what's the word woke, or you know how much of this of what of of the it it does seem that the most offensive, or if not all of the, the offensive. Western academic, not just the universities, other institutions saying these things in support either of Palestine, Palestine or, or not really saying anything for Israel or openly supporting Hamas and saying the violence is beautiful or exhilarating or this type of stuff. This is all coming from the left. What's wrong with the left? What's going on here? And I think a lot of people would respond, Well, it's it's wokeness. It's this it's this idea, these particular ideas that we would call woke. Of these particular formulations of what racism are, for instance, maybe the idea that, like you know, racism is this is this thing that white people do to everyone else, uh, as well as the simplification that that Israelis are, are white people, which doesn't which is just false on its face. But never mind that. And so the source of what we're seeing is uh, wokeness. It's this it's this virulent form of leftist political thought? What do you think of that explanation?
1: Um, I don't love the word wokeness, um, (laughs) mainly because I don't really know what it means. Uh, Well, partly because I don't really know what it means and partly also because whenever I hear the word used, it's used as a pejorative. It's used. uh, It's not a way in which people really describe themselves. So uh, i would like you to be a little clearer <laughs> in um exactly what you think is the issue um there was something else that you said that i wanted to answer and i can't remember what it was now um,
0: um...
1: oh yes um i think it's very important <clears throat> i think it's uh, quite untrue that um anti-semitism is a uh, an exclusively left-wing problem um indeed whenever anyone says um that anti-semitism is really a left-wing problem or whenever other people say anti-semitism is really a right-wing problem i always read that statement itself as a kind of whitewashing of the kind of anti-semitism that is present in the political milieu which you prefer, <laughs> so I don't think um, I, I think you know I think there is left wing antisemitism, and I'm extremely threatened by it. In fact, I am particularly threatened by it because, in a sense, it is my political family. It's 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 the people around me. It's you know <laughs> people who were my friends. It's people who I work with. It's people mm. who I teach, and I'm. I'm especially concerned about the anti-Semitism that is close to me, that is around me, and that uh, it presents itself as speaking kind of for my values. Um, so I've always been the opposite of that. I've never said, oh, well, the, the, you know, the real anti-Semitism is over there on the right or over there on the left. I've always been the most worried about the antisemitism that it, that is close to me that I can see the most the most clearly and that I understand the best.
0: Mm. That's well said. Uh no, I did not I did not mean to suggest that antisemitism is is limited to one side or the other. It's certainly that's certainly not true. It's just what I what I meant is that since October 7th we have seen some offensive support not simply for Palestinian rights. But explicitly for Hamas, even celebrating the violence explicitly. Um, and
1: well, let's declare, yeah. let's be clear: support for Hamas is opposition to Palestinian rights.
0: I think so, but I don't think that the people who are saying these things would agree with us. I think you know when people say "Free Palestine," I respond, "Yeah, from from Hamas, <laughs> Free Gaza from Hamas," but. Uh, I think that the people who are saying things that are pro Hamas, they think that Hamas is is liberating Gaza and Gazans from Israel. That's the way they see it. And the people who are saying these things and are saying, Oh, Hamas, this violence was beautiful, it was exhilarating one of them was a was a Cornell professor, very left wing, sort of decolonial studies expert, uh sort of anti racism type person. This Another one, you know, I'm seeing these comments coming from the left. That is not to say that the right doesn't have its own version of anti-Semitism. Of course it does. But what we've seen <laughs> since October 7th, a lot of the stuff that I've seen come out has been from what I would call, and I agree with you that this is a very clumsy term, but what I would call the woke sort of community has been spewing this stuff. Um, a better term for woke, unfortunately, I don't, I, I really wish we had one. I don't know. I, I sometimes just use the, the term progressive extremism or... Some people say identity Marxism, although I think that's also problematic. I think
1: all of these these terms have the same problem, which is that they're all kind of umbrella terms. So if there's a particular specific kind of politics or a specific way of thinking that you think um, quite likely leads to anti-Semitism, then you should say so rather than coming up with a kind of umbrella Um, basically a kind of umbrella insult word I think so uh, you might say for example that there is a particular kind of uh, uh, there's a particular variant of anti-racism which is kind of increasingly far removed from an anti-racism that I was brought up with so let me Give you an example that uh, the, the, the key way in which we opposed racism was by saying that race is not a, an, in, an inherent or a biological feature, right? Race is a social construction. Certain kinds of uh, uh, characteristics of human beings are held by uh, certain ways of thinking to be completely determinative of your value. And what the anti racists used to say was, that's not true. <laughs> that, that there are um, those kinds of uh, uh, differences amongst human beings are relatively completely trivial um, when measuring your value as a, as, a, as a human being. In fact, they are completely trivial. That those characteristics do not measure value. Mm. So what we said was what we're involved in is a fight against that social definition of some human beings as being of this race and other human beings as being of that race that the the designation of people according to race was itself a creation of racism now one thing that has happened in some versions of anti-racism is that Racism is thought to be such a hugely, overwhelmingly determinative feature of human civilization that, um, in fact, de facto, it comes to determine everything, right? So it's not that people are by nature of an inferior race, but it's that racism is such an overwhelming factor of all human society that it makes race the key determining factor of human beings and it's something that that we are given that we can't uh do anything about that's how the world works and you can see if you believe that then you're kind of coming back to a version to an understanding of the world where people are indeed divided into different races um but you you have a slightly different mechanism in mind, whereas I would say that the key thing is to say that uh, race is inherently um, trivial, hmm. and and that you know there is a universality of human beings that 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 there is a lot, like almost everything that human beings kind of share. And yes, racism divides human beings, but it is just one thing. And what happens is that racism is constructed as a kind of overwhelming and absolute structure, and every other structure is thereby trivialized. Um, and I don't think that's right. I think there are lots of things that determine relationships from human beings, and I think racism is one of them but I think there are many, many others. And if you see racism as the only really genuinely important structure, then you're gonna miss everything else. So I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't kind of sort of just splurge the word woke <laughs> over <laughs> that. I, I would really explain what's going on.
0: No, I, I, you make an excellent point. I agree with you completely. I. I believe the term, as we use it in its modern form, anti-racism, came from Ibram Kendi, who wrote the book, you know, How to Be an Anti-Racist. But before that, he wrote, which I didn't much care for, but I did really like his history of racism in America called Stamped from the Beginning, in which he outlines these three, he outlines segregationists who basically believe, you know, we shouldn't really be uh, mixing races, living with other races, even have our own, you know, countries ethno-nationalist nation this is sort of the position of the kkk then you have your assimilationists he called them that would be sort of mlk uh and that's what you and i sort of grew up with the idea that like racism is there race is there but it's not you're not supposed you know you judge someone by the content of their character not by the color of their skin as martin luther king Mm -hmm. famously said
1: But, but hang on but the reason for that is not because race is there race is not there race is a racist construction
0: no i mean Yes, it's a racist construction. It's a social. It's a. It's a social construction. It. It exists in a social form, but it's not real in any biological sense. But there is racism based on the conceptualization of race. Is what I meant. So it's a social construct. It's, yes, yeah, that's right. And then there's. Well, sorry, go ahead.
1: Having said all that, of course, uh, a social construct is something that exists in the yeah. real world. even yeah. If it's not in the material world.
0: Course. um the third category but, is ant- oh, i'm sorry think it's go ahead. just
1: really important to hold on to the to the principle that you know we are not actually divided uh into different races human mm. beings
0: no of course like, yeah. we
1: are only divided into into different races by racist discourse
0: mm. yeah i agree with you there the the th- the third group that Candy came up with is 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 what he calls the anti-racist, and this is essentially the idea that and any distinction, any difference between two racial groups is is the result of racism. This is the worldview that you were describing that sort of sees racism everywhere, race in everything. That that race consciousness, you know, the idea that we have to be thinking about race and we have to be aware of race as opposed to colorblindness. blindness. Uh, but the the, the reason. Uh, And I agree with all of that. And I would call that I would use his term for that. And I would say that that type of thinking is what I would call anti-racist, you know, ideology. Uh, And I consider myself more of an assimilationist in in the in the tradition of Martin Luther King. But um, that's anti-racism. But that doesn't really say anything about, you know, there's other issues that have nothing to do with race. We have we have discourse going on with regard to gender. We have you know, we have discourse going on with regard to sex, we have discourse going on with regard to anti Semitism, which is distinct from racism, and all of these things are tied together in ways that I I don't have a better word for it than than woke. I have other well, words that are Let's
1: think about think about anti-Semitism and racism, right? That the Nazis had to work really hard to construct Jews as a race. Right? Hmm because actually Jews don't really look like a race. Mm. Um, um, You know, Jews are diverse, Jews are diverse in colour, Jews are diverse in where they come from, in culture, in tradition, Jews are diverse in... Well, but as are black people, right? Black people are also diverse. But the Nazis defined Jews as being racially identical to other Jews. And yeah. it was a madness. I mean, it's a madness, right, to to kind of racialize, well, anybody uh, in that way. But, you know, the Nazis had to work especially hard, but they succeeded. Mm. And they murdered, you know, half the people on the planet and every person they could get hold of who they racialized as being of the Jewish race. Hmm. So, you know, again, um, um, there is no Jewish race, but Nazi racialization of Jews was a real thing (laughs) for many people uh, all over the world in, in the 1940s.
0: Yes, yeah. But this, this, um, I think, and I, I think that project continues to this day and is part of, that feeds into this uh, colonizer discourse. I touched on it earlier, but I, I do believe that a lot of the people who view Israel merely as a colonizer fail to recognize that Israel is arguably more ethnically diverse than the United States. And they see Israelis as a bunch of white European settler colonists and palestinians are the indigenous brown people and in their conceptualization this is just another classic story of white colonizer versus indigenous brown people and then after you've got the chessboard set up in that way the moral calculus is easy after that because well obviously the indigenous brown people are always the you know those those are the good guys so the only problem with that of course is that to think of israelis as as white it just that that doesn't make any sense it's not true um nor is it true of course to think of jews as you said as like this one racial group that doesn't it's just doesn't map onto reality in any way at all but it doesn't seem like people are letting that fact get in the way of their reasoning
1: <clears throat> there's something you said that i think was interesting which was i think you said something like um, Israel is thought of as just another colonial settler colonial state like all the others or something like that
0: or, or that it's thought of yeah that it's thought of as 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 yet another that this is yet another story of white colonizers yeah. and, and yeah. yeah
1: but no <laughs> it's not Israel is thought of as a, a kind of uniquely symbolic um, version of settler colonialism hmm. Um israel becomes a kind of passion play israel becomes um utterly symbolic of um every well for anti-semites for israel becomes symbolic of everything that's bad in the world hmm. so it, it's not just an ordinary you know story of white people and and, and um as you so delicately put it brown people um which is a kind of crazy way to talk about human beings, actually. It's a racist way to talk about human beings. Of course, Um, And, you know, Israel, certainly there's racism against Palestinians um, in Israel, uh, but it's not of that kind, actually. Right. Um, Anyway... So um, what you're,
0: you're saying is that this is not just another version of that story, this is in some way, like, the version of the story, like, the...
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the call, the current call for a ceasefire is really interesting to me. Um, Hamas says that something like 10,000 Palestinians uh, have died in Gaza uh, during the conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, we have really no way of knowing what the actual figure is, and we have no way of knowing what proportion of those people are combatants and what proportion of those people are not combatants. But forget that for a minute. Just take that as given, right? That, That the war aim of Israel is, it becomes genocide if that scale of human beings get caught up in the war. And it becomes not, you know, not only bad, not only wrong, not only misconceived, not only bad strategy, but it becomes like the Nazi genocide of the Jews. (laughs) Genocide. Right. Um, I checked it out because I couldn't remember how many um, civilians died in the Russian Civil War uh, between about 1919 and about 1921. Mm -hmm. And the estimates seem to be between 7 and 12 million people. And that war, one side of that war, was the workers' state that many people have some kind of warm feeling towards. Right. So why didn't Lenin call for a ceasefire after, say, 10,000 people had died, 10,000 civilians had died in the conflict? Why didn't he say, the fight for a workers' state is too expensive in human blood, Hmm. and we should surrender um because it's just not worth it <laughs> like like uh it, it's just a kind of extraordinary way of thinking that that people think that that's what israel should do right there is a force that believes that jews should be murdered and it showed us how jews should be murdered and it has explicitly said it will do it again and again and again right and israel is trying to defeat that force right um and um the reason that there are well there are a number of reasons that there are civilian casualties one of which is that the Palestinian population of gaza are used as hostages mm-hmm. by Hamas. um I mean, everybody knows this to be true, but nobody says it, (laughs) or or at least um, supporters, people who construct themselves as supporters of the Pasadena don't say it. Um, Everybody knows that. um, I mean, it it sounds like a kind of awful, you know, Hasbara kind of cliche propaganda to say that Hamas have military installations under hospitals and schools but they do actually have military installations under hospitals and schools. And everyone knows it. And, you know, UN knows it. The UN refugee agency knows it. Uh, everybody knows it. And at some point, um, the Israelis are going to have to, you know, follow Hamas into those bases. And um, it, I mean, look, fine you can say that this is not a smart war it's not a strategically sensible thing to do there are other possibilities i mean you can say that i'm not sure what they are you can say that but that's not the same thing as saying this is genocide right (laughs) this is genocide this is you know genocide with the intent to destroy the person and people as a whole or this is a um a collective punishment I mean, the idea then is that uh, the people of Gaza are punished to such an extent that they will prevent Hamas from doing this again. Mm. That's the, the idea that that's what the Israeli strategy is. Right. I mean, it's just not true, and it's not what the Israelis are doing. We've seen in previous conflicts in Gaza when the figures came out in the end and, the, and Hamas, uh, they claim their combatants, right, and they bury them with honors and uh, we've seen that approaching half of the people uh, who died in um, May 21 were uh, Hamas and Islamic Jihad combatants. Now, um, anyone who knows anything about urban warfare will know that never in the history of urban warfare have such a small number of civilians been killed in that kind of warfare right i mean like 1700 civilians died in the assault on raqqa which was the isis headquarters um and of course because isis wouldn't let them go (laughs) isis wanted them there they wanted them to be killed so that they could play the victim and i don't remember the same kind of accusation of genocide against us and kurdish forces that we've seen uh, that we see regularly uh, against israel um similarly in fallujah similarly in mosul um uh, and that's uh, before we start discussing uh, urban warfare in which you know modern western armies are not involved yeah so it it's it the you know it's it's if you take apart what these arguments are they just crumble in your fingers and you know they are made by the most sophisticated professors on the planet <laughs> yeah. but uh there is kind of nothing to them it's it's really quite astonishing um yeah. uh it it must be the case that like, if you believe that there is, that that, that just wars exist, if you believe that some things are worth fighting for, and if you believe that sometimes you're forced to fight because otherwise your people will be slaughtered and raped and kidnapped, uh, then, you know, but, but this is not strange to the left, right? The left always says, you know, we will fight racism by any means necessary. By any means necessary. But if the Israelis fight the genocidal, anti-Semitic uh, competence of Hamas, who have the theory in their charter of what they believe about Jews and who demonstrated what they would like to do to all of the Jews on 7th October, then it's not by any means necessary at all. Then, then. There is an abstract right for Israel to defend itself. Yes, everybody concedes that Israel has the right self-defense, but anything that Israel might actually do in its own defense is considered um, illegitimate. I mean, this is Shakespearean, right? You remember the Merchant of Venice, right? You remember in the trial scene of the Merchant of Venice when uh, Shylock the Jew is given his uh, bond and he has an agreement uh, with the Mm -hmm. anti-Semitic, merchant that he will have a pound of flesh and uh, they say yes yes you have the legal right to your bond but uh un- but under any circumstances in which you might get what your bond gives you it will not be legal right you have the right to self-defense but if you shed one drop of christian blood or muslim blood or anybody's blood then you do not have the right to self-defense so, forget by any means necessary. <laughs> change it to by no means at all ever. Will you actually be allowed to to um, uh, take, make use of your rights to self-defense? Hmm.
0: Yeah, uh, and and also, I mean, just consider the, the numbers have gone up since. But the last time I looked at the that the uh, the fatalities in Gaza, it you know and then you look at the population of Gaza it it uh it came out to i think it penciled out to about 0.4% of the population i mean this is a this is within israeli territory israel is one of the most advanced militaries on the planet if they genuinely had any genocidal intentions after a month of the mo- one of the most powerful militaries in the world fighting not like a nearby nation like in their own territory and and they've killed Less than half of one percent. It doesn't make any sense if they genuinely wanted genocide. Hang
1: on, on. you should be careful with the word "killed," because the story is that the Israelis are murdering people. They are targeting people. They are murdering in a campaign of retribution and vengeance and uh, and and collective punishment.
0: That's fair. They are not
1: killing people, right, in the sense of murder. They are attacking legitimate, uh, you know, targets, anti-Semitic, murderous combatants who are hiding behind their hostages.
0: Yeah, you're right. Yeah. But I'm simply making the point that even if we take Hamas's numbers at face value, it that still leaves open the question of why? Why would it be? 0.4% 0.4% of the population, if this is genocide, I mean, not to be crass, but simply put, if, if Israel really wanted genocide, it wouldn't be 0.54%. It would be 20, 30, 60% uh, within days, not a month to get to half a percent. This clearly is not their intention. Just, I mean, for everything that you said, and also just the numbers, it just doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. But again, I go back to... I, <laughs> Sorry to bring this word up again, but this to me seems like a, a habit of whatever you would want to call this aspect of the left progressive movement, hyperbolic uh, hyperbolic diction. And one example of that is the use of the term genocide for certain crises. This is one. In the United States, we have a completely unrelated example of, a, of an ongoing transgenocide because people are not getting, you know, uh, medical uh, care that they want f- to to transition or the government's not paying for it. Therefore, that's a genocide to be compared to the Holocaust, pr- presumably. Um, or there's many examples of things that are called racist that are, when you look at them, actually, it, you know, it's sort of just boggles the mind. It's, it's almost just darkly amusing, the absurd... Things that that are continually being called racist in the most extreme terms. And I and I and so when I see people on the left, the same people, the same people who are decolonial scholars, who are uh, black lives matter activists, who are uh, anti-racist scholars, who are, you know, I do wish we had a better word for this, but woke is the one that usually gets thrown around for the, the gender uh, discourse and all of these things combined. There's a lot of hyperbolic speech, and it doesn't surprise me at all that they would apply the word genocide to a situation like this because it's, it's sort of um, – uh, it's, it's the way that they – what is the term I'm looking for? It's, it's the way that they um, carry out their discourse. It's quite common, in fact, to use these types of hyperbolic terms. Have you not not noticed that yourself?
1: I mean, I I think... uh, Look, I think people perhaps don't know what genocide is um, Mm. and perhaps haven't really thought it through and perhaps don't understand the realities of um, uh, urban warfare. I mean, I think there is a trope of Jewish power which holds that Israel is so powerful... And so cunning and so clever that if it wanted to, it would be able to defeat Hamas without killing anybody. Huh. Um, uh, that's the only conclusion you can come to, right? That, that uh, Israel wants this death toll. Well, and as as is so often the case, it's it's literally an inversion of the truth that anti Semites. Uh, accuse Jews of doing the things that they themselves do and that they themselves fantasize about. They hmm. always have. So, Interesting. Um, th- you know, the truth is that Hamas <clears throat> need um, a an ever increasing civilian death toll. That's that was one of their war aims. I mean, what what do you imagine they were trying to achieve? Right. Right. I mean, you know that, that if they go and kill, um, murder 1,400 Jews in cold blood, they know that the Israelis are going to come after them. And they know that lots and lots of Palestinian civilians are going to be killed. And they know that, you know, at very best, they can run and hide and then get uh, uh, some kind of international community to, to push uh, for a ceasefire um that's the war aim but actually this time i suspect the israelis are not going to cease fire Hmm. they're not going to do what they have done in the past which is to say all right you know we've inflicted some damage we've treated hamas as though they are rational actors and we have inflicted such damage upon their forces and their power that they will not want to do this again um and right. <clears throat> you know and israelis have absolutely not wanted to do what is required to defeat hamas um i think this time they seem quite determined to do so um um, but, but there you go, That's kind of a different story, but, but the, the point about projection, the point about anti-Semites projecting onto Jews their own fantasies and their own intentions and their own actions, yeah. you see that showing up in almost every um, anti-Semitic movement. Um, so when the anti-Semites accuse the Jews of wanting to control the world, for example, of course, it is the anti-Semites who fantasize about controlling the world. Yeah. when when anti-Semites accuse the Jews of wanting to commit genocide it is of course the anti-Semites who want to commit genocide right like this is really anyone who knows anything about anti-Semitism knows that this has always been the case
0: hmm. no doubt indeed um, let me ask you something uh Earlier, we 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 covered sort of you know there is anti-Semitism on the left. There is, of course, also anti-Semitism on the right. Um, do you see them as manifesting in different ways? Do they have different characters? Do they focus on different aspects of Jewish people,
1: mm-hmm.
0: or are they basically it's, the same it's thing?
1: Funny. It's funny because since we've been speaking, of, uh, and you brought up that idea that you know the the most serious sentiment threat is on the left um i have this kind of memory in my head i'm quite old and my head is a bit fuzzy right and i and i have this very clear memory of only a couple of months ago um a number of things that elon musk tweeted um again and again and again about 10 or 15 things that he tweeted um which were Absolutely clearly out of the anti-Semitic playbook, and it's funny because it feels almost like we're in a kind of new world since then. <laughs> and I can't remember um, <laughs> what they were. They're all in my Twitter timeline, right? But right. Um, what was he saying about? Oh, he was accusing the ADL, wasn't he, of trying to bankrupt him? Uh, I mean, I believe he I mean, threatened
0: think... to sue them. Uh, yeah, yeah,
1: like a, a completely laughable projection. You know, he's one of the most powerful and the richest men on the planet. And he, for whatever reason, was uh, on purpose kind of diminishing the value of Twitter by, I mean, rebranding it so that it looked like a kind of porn site and by, by making it an even more unpleasant place to be. He was, you know, purposely devaluing its value. And goodness me, who wants to drive a Tesla when he's doing that? And then he accuses this, you know, little anti-racist organisation, uh, the ADL, of, of being kind of so powerful that he needs to be afraid of it. It was just a kind of astonishing uh, 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 trope. Um, it, I mean, it, I, I, if I go back and look at, the, you know, some of the other things that he was talking about, I mean, he, he was talking about George Soros in the most extraordinary terms. Um, yes, yeah you might like George Soros or you might not like George Soros, but to characterize him as a kind of enemy of humanity, a man who hates humanity, uh, um, is just kind of, well, it's precisely the kind of hyperbolic speech that you were talking about as though it was a characteristic of the left. Mm. Um, And, um, of course, the idea of the enemy of the people, the enemy of humanity kind of residing in the face of the jew the jewish financier <laughs> it's it's old and it's threatening and uh, um elon musk was bringing it in right into the mainstream it, you know elon musk isn't isn't your uh beer killer um, skinhead, right yeah um he was bringing that discourse right into the mainstream um and uh, i think that's really threatening
0: actually. It certainly makes you wonder what he what he will or what he does have to say about that supposed lawsuit with the ADL in the wake of October seventh. I wonder if he's going to continue um, making such remarks. I haven't seen anything from him. Uh, on you know, well, there's no lawsuit, is there?
1: Because how could he possibly win a, that lawsuit? <laughs> I mean, it's an absurd claim. Um, but uh, you know, you don't want to be. Sued by somebody with lots more money than you because <laughs> that takes up your life for the next five years. Right? I mean, no,
0: no doubt there is, there is, uh, there are some forms of anti-Semitism that are maybe even indistinguishable on the left and the right. But I'm just wondering if, more generally speaking, do you think that there is, is there something that we can call left anti-Semitism and right anti-Semitism, or is that a false <clears throat> dichotomy? Is it there... I
1: don't think, I don't think so. I don't think so. Partly because. I don't think that the distinction between the left and the right is as simple as most people assume. In fact, I quite like playing this game with students. Um, When they first come to a sociology class, you say to them, is sociology a left-wing discipline? And most of them go, yeah, it is. And you say, well, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. And most of the answers that they come back with turn out to be one form or another of saying, well, they're nice people. <laughs> the, you know, the left <laughs> are nice and the right are horrid. Um, kind of the opposite of what you did, you know, when you said the, the woke are kind of awful and the non-woke are kind of great. Um, so I don't think... I think that the distinction between left and right is difficult. I mean, you know, there are plenty of free market sort of right-wingers who... Believe that uh racism is is a kind of awful, unjust um uh, deformation of free markets, actually. Mm. Um, and and you know, they're against it, right? So so um and therefore democracy and the rule of law and human rights, which are things that the left used to say it was for. So I think um so for a start, I think it's more fruitful to look at the, the the there are anti-Semites on the left and there are people who oppose anti-Semitism on the left. <clears throat> and they kind of come from different souls or different traditions of the left. Right. And I think that's true on the right also, <clears throat> excuse me, I think there are there are anti-Semitic traditions on the right, and there are um the traditions on the right which don't, don't agree with anti-Semitism at all um, so I don't think, I think that's a much more fruitful way of thinking about politics really uh, that the distinction between racist politics and anti-racist politics is as interesting as the distinction between left and right or the distinction between totalitarian politics and anti-totalitarian politics is also as interesting as left and right
0: um but wouldn't that suggest that that if there is such nuance and complexity between these things then wouldn't that suggest that that therefore they are different and they have different traditions and it's even there's even more nuance to the differences than we often recognize and so to say that like wow well, it's all the same is a gross oversimplification when actually they have <clears throat> you know they're the right, as you as you just said, you know, there's 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 people on the left who are and who are not. There's people on the right who are and are not. And and the traditions from which they come, in in each of those four categories, are going to be distinct. And so, therefore, left anti-Semitism and right anti-Semitism, they're not they're the same in the sense. Well, they're both anti-Semitic, but they come out of different traditions. They are wrapped up with packaged mm. with different other beliefs than than you would find well, on on the other side. I of the think map. that's
1: right. I think that's right. But I also think that there are. Uh, different anti-Semitism's in different times, and there are different anti on the left and the right. There are Christian anti-Semitism's, there are Muslim anti-Semitism's, there are secular and liberal anti-Semitism's. Um, uh, I think actually that um, you have to look when you you are trying to work out an, an anti-Semitic movement. You have to look at who. Who is it that is picking up these anti Semitic tropes and fragments from ancient and utterly irrelevant movements and mm. recycling them in, in the present day? Right? So you know that um you remember the the, the story of nineteen eighty four, right? Nineteen eighty four has this idea of the enemy of the people, right? The yeah. the uh, the Goldstein figure, right? He's not he's called Goldstein, that let that be a clue, right? He's <laughs> he's uh, the 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 party in the story um, puts everything bad into the face of the Jew, <clears throat> and it gives you the Jew and his face every day to hate and to throw things at and to shout at. So um, I mean that's the kind of characteristically mid twentieth century totalitarian notion of the enemy of the people. So so what is Elon Musk reaching for the face of George Soros. Why is he doing that? Mm. Or why is President Orbán of Hungary putting George Soros's face on billboards at election time and saying, he's laughing at you? Mm. Like, it's not because the anti-Semitism itself is is some kind of inherently, you know, uh, it's almost, it's to Anti-Semitism much too much respect. I mean, anti-Semitism is not this kind of great, big, impressive, enduring thing. People just pick up these kind of emotionally virulent ideas and tropes and and images, and they recycle them, <laughs> and they recycle them for their own reason.
0: Mm. So it sort of self perpetuates because people are doing it for things that serve themselves, and there it's not as if anybody wakes up in the morning and says, "Oh, I." I hate Jews, and so I'm going to say this thing. It's is that what you're just? No, it
1: doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't self perpetuate. It is perpetuated by human agents hmm. who pick it up and who use it because they know that it will give them some kind of advantage. Hmm. So, if you're doing conspiracy fantasy, right? If you're going to say that I don't know, vaccines for COVID or lockdowns for COVID was a sort of conspiracy of you know, who knows what, some sort of dark, impenetrable, invisible power that really runs the world and tricks us all into believing that there was a virus, it just so happens that if you bring in the notion of, if you bring in the Jewish face to be the face of that unseeable, invisible conspiracy, it generally works for you quite well right it's difficult to imagine an unseeable conspiracy of i don't know capitalists or the davosocracy or the 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 globalists or, or or whoever you want to kind of construct as the bogeyman so um to give it a face a human face an ugly human face often does quite well for you and it just so happens that the anti-semitic notion of the jew the anti-semitic image of the jew is evolved through many, many completely different anti-Semitic movements in completely different times and completely different places. But these images of the Jew are evolved to have a certain kind of effect that they come from, <clears throat> you know, they come, they, they are used to represent that which is unseeable and evil. So they were used to represent... Um, that which prevented god from making everything nice for us Hmm. or they were used to represent that which prevented the communist party from creating socialism or they were refused they were used to to create the image of um, the 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 people who are making hungary you know a place that uh, hungarians think should be better or um it, it's uh these kind of fragments and tropes are um I, I think evolution is quite a nice model actually i think that um i was just going to ask they're, you they're, yeah
0: it you said earlier that you know there's not only these different sort of subgenres of anti-semitism pol- on the political spectrum you you said it also you it, it's different by time period and i was gonna ask you know yeah. so therefore as people are picking up aspects of anti-semitism and using it for their own purposes then it's changing and morphing based on how it's used and evolving and therefore my question is do you think that right now what we're experiencing rather than anti-semitism as as we've always known it uh is is it in fact always a new thing? Is it always something? And and this and perhaps this this uh, touches on a rebirth of anti-Semitism in the 21st century. Is it? Are we in an era of new anti-Semitism? Which which oh that's yeah. uh, that's a technical well, term I, I guess think... for for anti-Zionism. But um, yeah, that's my question. Is 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 the anti-Semitism we see now something that we've never seen before? Is it entirely new? Well,
1: Look, there, there's a sense in which everything we see now is entirely different from everything we've seen before, hmm. right? There is there is nothing that is kind of in some profound sense genuinely authentic. There are, you know, we reproduce things in a new world, in a new situation, in a new context with different meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, so what's at stake in the question, right? Um, I mean, I'm not particularly comfortable with the term the new anti-Semitism because uh it's it seems to imply that there is one old authentic anti-semitism and then there is this new kind of version that is different from it but similar to it in some ways and that's not my view either there's there's a book in the british library called the new anti-semitism which was published in 1921 i think about the protocols Hmm. um uh kind of fascinating, right? And as I said before, Wilhelm Ma invented a new anti-Semitism because he thought that the old uh, uh, anti... the old religious Christian anti-Judaism was ridiculous. And in fact, it's really characteristic of anti-Semitic movements that they ridicule the ones that came before them. (laughs) Right? So, Hmm. uh, you know, people who embrace anti-Semitism today They say, well, we're nothing like the Nazis. We're nothing like these old anti-Semites. They were ridiculous and they were unjust because they accused Jews of all kinds of things that they had not done. But, Uh oh dear, in our time, it so happens that the Jews are doing the things that are similar to the things that anti-Semites of old accused them of doing. That's not my fault it's their fault right <laughs> but but it's it's like it's a really common way that anti-Semitism is, re- is reinvented by mm. uh, it begins by um, disavowing the old it disavows the old anti-semitism as being unjust and ridiculous and and it says but this new way of thinking is uh, completely different and uh, quite important um and um, so is the new, sorry every ahead. every anti-Semitism is new at some point, and every new anti-Semitism disavows the old.
0: And so is is the is the newness of the anti-Semitism that we are seeing now uh, centered on Israel and Zionism? Um,
1: I I think that uh, that there is an anti-Zionism which constructs zionism as being a kind of universal um symbol of everything that is bad in the world right so for example if uh, a racist cop murders a black man on the streets of um, minneapolis uh, there will be somebody who will say well those racist cops in minneapolis were only taught how to murder black men in America by the Zionists? Hmm. Uh, it's an extraordinary claim, like an absolutely extraordinary claim, as though cops in America needed teaching <laughs> um, how to do that by Israelis. I mean, uh, it's it's just and, and and it's also utterly incoherent, right?
0: Because, I, ha- I haven't heard that. That's because... that's. I mean, I, I, of course, I don't doubt that people are saying. I, I haven't heard that. I have heard a variation on that which is for instance if you see like a a a black youth perhaps kill an asian grandmother and people will say oh well that's because of white people that white people taught them that and that's that's white supremacy i've heard that argument i haven't heard the argument about like blaming it on zionists the like police violence in america i mean
1: there's there is no like israel is constructed as the as as either the the kind of pioneer of every technology of illegitimate power and oppression, um, the pioneer of, of, you know, strangleholds and the pioneer of uh, cameras and the pioneer of secret kind of, you know, uh, uh, surveillance of your computer. And either it's presented as a kind of pioneer of power, of techniques of power, or it's presented as symbolic of all evil mm. um, or both actually um, so so I mean there are there have been anti-Zionisms in the past that were not like that right that were critiques of certain kinds of Zionism but the anti-Zionism that more and more we see around us today is not a critique of a certain kind of zionism indeed um it's th- this is why they refer to israel as the zionist entity or or something like that which denies that it's a real nation state because they want it to be thought of as a as a as a kind of movement a political movement right israel is, is a, a zionist political movement and of course a political movement can be right or wrong. We can agree with it or we can disagree with it. And if you can portray Israel as a movement which all good people disagree with, then of course it should be got rid of, right? Or it should be defeated. But if Israel is a nation state like any other nation state, then it becomes um, it, it becomes an absurdity to say that Israel should be defeated and and kind of liquidated um Mm. you know you might not like various things about france about its history of colonialism or its cuisine or its many things not to like about france right but nobody constructs a global ideology by which everything bad in the world is explained by reference to French evil.
0: Right, nor, nor in, in, in America where you have uh, um, extremists who will say, you know, this land, you're on stolen land, and, and will, you know, th- those arguments that that, this, that America only exists as an inherently uh, white supremacist, genocidal nation, even still, the the, the people of that type that I haven't engaged with and interacted with they don't therefore say America should cease to exist and that all everyone who is not a native should go somewhere else and, <laughs> and leave the entire country to the natives who are like that. You don't hear that argument, but then you do hear it with Israel, which is quite interesting. Well, It,
1: it, it actually doesn't quite matter what they say. Right. If somebody stands up in New York and says New York is a, a Native American uh, a land and, you know, whatever Brooklyn was a Native American street, and uh, uh, everybody in Manhattan should leave um, or or agree to live under the the rule of whatever. It's not threatening. (laughs) It's just a bit silly, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody's threatened. Nobody thinks that you're going to bring your mates and you're going to come and rape and murder 1,400 people in the, the part of Manhattan that you can get hold of. Nobody thinks that uh, New York is going to be made into a kind of uh, symbol of all evil across the planet in the same way as it was once done by Nazis. Mm. I mean, look, actually, there's quite an interesting fact, which is that uh, anti-Americanism is a thing and anti-Americanism has quite a lot of similarities with anti-Semitism. But hey, let's not go there for the moment. The point I want to make is that the content of saying that Israel is evil and should be destroyed, the meaning of that is different from saying that Canada is evil and should be destroyed. Right? If you say that Canada is evil and should be destroyed, nothing happens. If you say that Israel is evil and should be destroyed, you get genocidal movements which work towards destroying israel and all the jews in it mm. so so you can have a kind of abstract uh, uh, similarity you know you say oh no you know i don't only say that about israel i also say it about canada but the difference of course is is the content right there there is no threat to wipe canada off the map and to kill canadians mm. um and there is no sort of 3,000 year old tradition of anti Canadian tropes and emotions and uses that this anti Canadian movement can key into. So it's just a kind of abstract universalism to say, oh, well, you know, it's not only Israel, but it's also um, Australia. It, It doesn't matter what people say about Australia, Australia's not going anywhere.
0: That's an excellent point. It
1: matters what people say about Israel.
0: Mm, that is a good point. What what is the uh connection there? You touched on it briefly. Uh anti US sentiment and anti Semitism. There's a is that I I do n I have noticed that some of the strongest anti anti Israel, anti Semitic voices that I see, whether they are academics or journalists, they are invariably also incredibly anti US to the point that they will be that they will do uh, apologia for Russia, for China, for Syria, for, you know, all of our rivals, simply because they're our rivals, no, no matter the horrors that they may be inflicting on their own people. I have noticed that overlap, but I don't really have a theoretical well, what are, framework. What are the tropes,
1: for... are the tropes of, of anti-Americanism? What do people say about Americans? They say that Americans... They want to control America's the world? a real nation. It's mm. not a real nation, Right. It's just a kind of melting pot of, of a mixture of bastard peoples. It's not a real nation. It doesn't have a real language. It doesn't have a real territory. Um, Americans are vulgar. Americans are stupid. Americans are, rely only on physical power. Um, they have no genuine history and no genuine culture. Um, Americans are only interested in money. Um, America tries to rule the world so that it can make money out of the whole world and its uh, media and its news systems try to uh, fool the whole world into believing its ideology Hmm. all of those things all of those things can be and have been said by anti-Semites about Jews
0: yes, interesting I guess I hadn't piece all of those claims together yeah, it's quite obviously the same argument but what is the provenance it's it's a, it's, yeah. a, it's, a
1: it, it's also it's not a it's not an authentic nation and it doesn't have an authentic homeland hmm um are you going to let me go soon <laughs> yeah uh
0: yeah of course sorry um that <laughs> that's was all right that's that uh...
1: one hour forty minutes I'm not too. I'm not really thinking about my own uh, uh, suffering. I'm thinking about the suffering of the people who are gonna have to listen
0: to it <laughs> uh, i' I'm, I'm sure they'll be as fascinated by this as, as I am um, and if not they they all have pause buttons uh, uh, okay, last question um, or, or
1: they have the uh, double speed buttons right?
0: Yes, exactly that seems to be what everyone does these days. I can't do it. I can't people listening on like triple speed I'm like, Doing the dishes in triple speed, I, I, I mean, I, I think it's a cool thing to to, to, to to listen three times faster than you can read. I just does my head in. Uh, I,
1: I, I, had, I had an impulse just now to do that kind of high-pitched, really fast voice. And I'm <laughs> just so start talking glad that, that way. I'm I didn't do that. Uh, I'm so glad I didn't do that. <laughs> uh,
0: okay, here we are. Last question. Um, what, if anything, can be done? what what answers do we have available to us what um steps can be taken is it is it a matter of raising awareness is it a matter of uh i mean when and i'm not talking about the situation that israel's in i'm talking about the problem outside of israel in the united states or in britain or in france with with rampant Semitism that i think has probably shocked many people since october seventh. just how how virulent it was um much more than I think many people realized.
1: I think that's a really difficult question. Um, I think since I've been thinking about this seriously for about 20 years, things have been getting worse. Um, Not catastrophically worse. You know, it hasn't fallen off a cliff. It's not 1939. But progressively, one step after the other, things have been getting worse and things have been said and have happened which could not have been said or happened a few years ago. Um, and I'm worried about this. I think uh, there's a particular kind of maybe trauma in America, actually, because I, when I first started coming to America talking about anti-Semitism, quite a lot of people just looked at me and said, don't be so silly, <laughs> right? That Ameri- You know, they said Jews are powerful in America. And uh, anti-Semites thought Jews were powerful in America and Jews thought Jews were powerful in America. And I always looked at them and I said, but Jews are not powerful in America. Actually, this stuff that we have seen, you know, in British academia, in the British Labour Party, it's coming. And stuff that we saw in France, probably before that, it's coming. It's on its way. And I think... Uh, many people in America, many Jews in America have, um, are beginning to kind of know that now. Um, and I think that's a really, uh, Anthony Julius said about Jews uh, in Britain, actually, in relation to the 7th of October, he said, uh, Jews are, oh gosh, what did he say? Hang on, I'm going to have a look. Can I write it down early on? Um, What did he say? He said, uh, all right, you're going to have to cut this for a minute and I'm going to go and find it. That's fine. um, That's fine. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you're able or willing to do that, but give me a minute and I will come back with that. Um, He said Jews are demoralized and isolated. He said, uh, it is a state, however, that should not be confused with passivity or with weakness of resolve. And he said that um, British Jews had a pretty good record of standing up um, together as one, really, more or less, against um, Corbyn against the, the moment in which we had uh, an legitimate candidate for number 10. Um, right. But that feeling of um, demoralization and isolation, I think, is quite um, is quite uncomfortable. And I think um, American Jews are feeling its uncomfortableness in particular because they haven't felt it before. Um, I think uh, somebody told me that a few years ago when there were, do you remember, there were a load of uh, bomb threats found in uh, to Jewish um, community centers? across America. It turned out to be some awful, stupid hoax. Mm. But uh, a lot of people in America didn't like (laughs) the idea that there was a threat to bomb their child's nursery. And they hadn't experienced things like that before. Um, So I think uh, there's a moment of trauma in America. uh, Well, you know, as (laughs) there is globally, but in in particular in America. Um, le- let me just finish um, by tr- explaining a little bit about what um, what we do. <clears throat> um, we've set up the London Centre for the Study of Contemporary Anti-Semitism, um, and we like to think that the London in that name is not really a kind of parochial English London, but it's a kind of global hub <laughs> London. Um, There are many senses in which the kind of anti-Semitism that we're seeing on campus in Britain and in Europe, and actually also in Israel and in many other places, is similar to the anti-Semitism that we see across America and Canada. Hmm. Um, You know, there are particularities, but there are also similarities. And um, what we are trying to do is to challenge it, and we're trying to challenge it in a particular kind of way. So everyone who looks at this issue knows that uh, there's an issue of antisemitism on campus and there's an issue of antisemitism amongst some of the very uh, most respected scholars in the humanities and the social sciences. Everybody knows that. But most people have no way of engaging with those people. Um, And I think that we have developed and are developing ways of engaging with those people because we're academics. We understand universities, universities are our places, we work in universities, we do research, we write books, we write journal articles. Um, And uh, we have a kind of unique way of challenging the underpinnings, the intellectual underpinnings of contemporary anti-Semitism. And um, it's an extraordinarily difficult thing to do because There is a culture on campus which makes us, uh, which puts us in a difficult position. Um, We are not uh, widely respected in the way that um, people who obey the orthodoxies in our disciplines are respected. We do not get funding anywhere near as easily as people who find the the median (laughs) um, opinions to research. Um, We do not get promoted. It is really difficult to bring young scholars through to get funding for PhDs, to get PhD students to find academic jobs. Um, There are not many of us left in Britain, actually, scholars who earn a living by working on anti-Semitism, by studying anti-Semitism, and by challenging anti-Semitism. So what we're trying to do is institutionalize. We're trying to create communities of scholarship. A university is a community of scholarship, but we feel in many significant ways that we are locked out of the community of scholarship because we are portrayed not as participants in that community, but as people who uh, uh, lie for Israel, as people who kind of mobilize all our great knowledge and and cleverness uh, in order to tell lies <laughs> right again the projection of, of what uh, anti semites tend to do and to fantasize about doing is projected onto jewish scholars mm. so um i suppose part of what i'm saying is that um <clears throat> to to take on anti-semitism at the level of scholarship at the level of the disciplines of sociology of law of humanities of political science to challenge anti Semitism at those levels requires uh, research funding. It requires, and research funding is inherently extremely expensive because you have to pay for scholars to get time out of their ordinary work of teaching and admin <clears throat> and the rest of it, and you have to pay them to have the time to sit and write books which take on the books um, that uh, uh, are embracing anti-semitic thinking hmm. um, and on top of that you have to pay overheads to the universities right so so what we're doing is we're doing something immensely hard um we're trying to get funding for research we're trying to create uh, academic uh community we're trying to build conferences and journals and book publishing and um uh, scholarships and all of those things and uh <clears throat> Sorry, you've guessed where this is going, really. This is going in a, in a, a, a call for help. Um, we need funding mm. and, we, and we need support and we should be supported because um, a lot of what we've learned over the last 20 years um, is pretty sharp and pretty good and um, we were not surprised <laughs> by what happened on the 7th of October. And we were not surprised by how it was possible for people on the left to glory it, to glory in it, to celebrate it, to deny it, to trivialize it, to not even really notice it. None of that surprised us. Um, So people should come and have a look at our website, uh, which is londonantisemitism.com. People should read our books, read our papers, come and join our community. We have communities of scholars, but we also have communities of people who make it their business to support our scholarship. Um, and um, we have huge resources. We, I mean, we have created huge resources. We have a YouTube channel full of videos um, of people speaking much more coherently and fluently than I have been doing for the last hour and a half or two hours, um, we have been bringing together, um, really good resources of videos, of articles, of journals, of books, um, and we're growing and we're doing quite well and we are there to, um, embrace American scholars who are coming to this, some of them, for the first time, um, and who are noticing that Jewish studies and, Many other areas of scholarship are absolutely, sometimes are absolutely not up to the job.
0: Yeah, of but course.
1: It, I mean, I, just ahead. to be clear, I don't say that about all Jewish studies or about all scholars. Um, I think there are parts of the university and parts of the disciplines uh, where there is anti-Semitism. There are disciplines that are particularly badly affected. But around those disciplines and around those spaces and around those departments, there are other academics who will defend those anti-Semites on the basis of freedom of speech, on the basis of academic freedom, on the basis of academic autonomy, who will defend their right to be anti-Semitic. And around them are many people who are afraid to speak out because they do all right. You know, they have their little... Uh, they make their living doing one aspect of, of um, mm. research and they do it very well. But if they speak out uh, on some of these big issues, then they might lose their position. Yeah, And that might mean they might lose their livelihood or they might lose their ability to do the work that they love doing. Um, so th- think of a kind of onion, you know, that the actual committed people who, who really are committed to anti semitic politics are fairly small, but around them there are all kinds of layers that legitimate them and that protect them. And there are people in authority on campuses who protect them. And we feel that we don't get that kind of protection. <laughs> um, if, you know, you say the kinds of things that I've been saying today, uh, you will not get research funding. You will not be protected by um, by your, you know, your head of department and your faculty and your president and Jesus. the rest of it.
0: That's shameful. Uh,
1: and life life will be tough.
0: That is shameful. Well, I hope, however thin and exterior to the onion uh, a, a layer that I am, I can help at least. Uh, <laughs> Be, uh-huh. be, be a bullhorn. Uh, I will definitely include any links that I can in the show notes. Uh, your work is noble and needed, and I hope that everybody will go to the website and uh, look, at, look at the work that you've done and and read your book, by the way, which I will include yep. a link to that as well. Fantastic book. Um,
1: so if I could say one other thing. Yes, uh, please. Um, uh, well, go to the website, which is londonantisemitism.com. And you, will, if you, you have to spend some time with it and you have to find what's there because uh, there's a lot there. Um, find our book series, which is called Studies in Contemporary Antisemitism. Mm. Um, we have four books on their way through um, and we've only been going about a year and I'm very excited about that project. One of the books is my own um, project that I have edited that brings together um, 11 scholars, people who are central and key to our whole project, um, people who are looking back over the um, 21st century from uh, the end of the peace process, from uh, Durban, from the uh, first Intifada. Is that the, um, the Intifada that uh, followed um, the breakdown of the peace process in 2001? Um through the boycott campaign, the campaign for an academic boycott of Israel, Mm. through um, in Britain to uh, anti-Semitism, moving into the trade unions and the Labour Party, um, and all the way through to the present day. And if you want to understand how it is that people who consider themselves to be good and consider themselves to be on the left can look at what happened last October the 7th and not really think it's significant then um, read
0: my new multi-authored book. I deb- I myself am going to do that immediately after this conversation. I hope everyone else will check that out too. That sounds fascinating. I, I don't think
1: you are because
0: it's not out yet. <laughs> I, <all laughs> I, <right. sent> <laughs> I think As soon as I get my hands on it then, as soon as I can get yeah. my hands on it, and especially, unfortunately, uh, with recent events, it is, it is your work is needed now more than ever before and i wish uh, you know in in a sense i wish that wasn't the case but it is and so we have to inform ourselves and uh, and and sure. we're great we're grateful to have you and, and i'm grateful to have had your time thank you very much for this i could uh, conversation. i could
1: happily talk to you about the kind of sociology i would like to be doing if i didn't have to do this <laughs> so there you go um londonantisemitism.com thank you very much
0: thank you sir